Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. That's Hail to the Tsar. But the reason I picked it to open today's show, which is about Rasputin, is that the primary vocalist there is Jana Bichovskaya, uh, who is one of, I think, maybe numerous more modern Russian important people who kind of feel as though Rasputin needs to be reevaluated, rejudged, and, and rejudged in uh, an overwhelmingly positive light. So that's one of the things we're going to do today. We're going to talk to you about the reality behind this cartoonized vision of Rasputin as this just irrevocable and and, and incorrigible, blazing-eyed fiend uh, and sex maniac and a lot of other things. Besides the mad monk uh, image, there's a, a lot of difference from that. But the other thing we'll be exploring a little bit here, and I just want to say also that prior to plunging into this, and we, we did start talking about this show, this particular episode, six years ago. It's like Fitzcarraldo, the Werner Herzog movie. It's taken a long time to get it on the air. Uh, but at the time, like I, I was not any more sophisticated about this than anybody else. In fact, I'm pretty sure when it came up, my first question was, are we going to talk about what happened to his penis? So that's the level I'm operating at. However, I have had the opportunity to, to see a better way, or at least maybe a smarter way, uh, thanks to our first guest here. Douglas Smith is an award-winning historian and translator and the author of numerous books on Russia, including Former People, The Final Days of the Russian Aristocracy, and most notable for our purposes, Rasputin, Faith, Power, uh, and The Twilight of the Romanovs. Douglas Smith, welcome to our conversation. Thank you for having me. And um, so let's begin. Well, we might as well begin at the beginning. So you, he's this this man is born in Siberia, not born, I think, under the name Rasputin either. You went to Siberia to see if there were things that we still didn't know about Rasputin after all these years. Uh, he. Uh, he uh, died, uh, you know, well, more than 100 years ago. But um, what did you find? First of all, I just want to know, what's it like to be walking around Siberia asking questions about Rasputin? How does that go over? <laughs> it's a lot of fun, actually. Or it used to be. I, I don't know about uh, what it'd be like to be doing it now in the current situation. But, uh, yeah, I went out to uh, to uh, Western Siberia, where Rasputin hailed from, um, to the little village of Pakrovskaya on the Tura River. And there's in fact a Rasputin museum there. Um, and I visited the museum and met with the, the couple that have put it together. They're absolute Rasputin um, fanatics. And it was really amazing experience to be there and to talk to these people and also to work in archives in nearby cities in Tobolsk and, and Tumien and to unearth um, documents that have uh, eluded other historians and biographers. Um, 
it was really fascinating. I, I am someone who believes that when you research a subject, you need to try to visit those places that they themselves moved through and inhabited. And um, for me, when I decided to write this book uh, back in 2010, when I first came up with the idea, I knew that I had to really try to visit as many of the places connected with his life as possible. So um, he's, he would have grown up, you know, uh, an essentially unmoneyed peasant, a person with very few prospects in life. Uh, but the first thing that happens, that thing, I think, that kind of changes the course of his life is some kind of massive religious or spiritual awakening, right? He becomes kind of an itinerant believer. Exactly. We don't know what exactly provoked it, but he did become what's known in Russian as a strannik, which is a holy pilgrim. And uh, in the late 19th century, there was perhaps as many as a million of these holy pilgrims in Russia, most of them poor, traveling on foot over the vast stretches of the Russian empire from church to church, monastery to monastery in search of spiritual enlightenment. And Rasputin became one of these holy pilgrims. And I like to think of it at his, his university, sort of, excuse me, what he he used as a way of educating himself about the nature of the empire, about the nature of people, about the nature of God and the religious experience. And it, it was profound in shaping him into the Rasputin that he would become later. Right. Well, you just say something about the name. Rasputin is not a name he's born with. Actually, no, it is. It is. Okay. Because I, I thought yes. it, I thought the I read somewhere that the name referred to debauchery or something. Has it acquired that that meaning? Well, that's, a, again, there are all these myths about Rasputin. Um, and that was one of the things I set out to sort of uh, explore when I did my biography is where's the truth, where's mm -hmm. the legend, where's the myth and all that. And Rasputin, uh, in Russian pronounced Rasputin, is a fairly common uh, surname in that part of, of Siberia. But people would make a, a play on the word because Rasputnik in Russian is like a reprobate. Mm. And so many began to say that, oh, well, that wasn't his original surname, but that was, in fact, given to him uh, as a sign of his moral debauchery and what have you. But in fact, he was born Grigory Rasputin. That was his father's name was Rasputin and, and ancestors before. So that is, again, mm -hmm. one of these myths. It's sort of like this notion of the mad monk. Um, he was never a monk. He was never mm -hmm. a priest. In fact, that the word, the title mad monk comes from the name of a book by a really wacky, bizarre um, Russian priest by the name of Iliador, who was once very close with Rasputin and then they parted ways and, and Iliador was in several plots to try to then kill Rasputin. And Iliador wrote a book called The Mad Monk, referring to himself as the Mad Monk. So all this stuff got so twisted over the decades and century that I, I really wanted to set out in my book and try to set it all straight. But the, the really interesting um, premise uh, or one of the major premises of the book is that, yes, there are, you know, for some of the moments in Rasputin's life, there might be four different circulated narratives about that moment. But what's really important, you say, is not what the actual reality is, or not that that's unimportant, but the more important thing is how does this live in the mind of the Russian people at the, this moment? Who do they think is living among them and hanging out with their empress. And who do they think this guy is? That's almost more important than who he really is. That's exactly right, the way you put it. I, you know, I, as I said, I set out to try to pull Rasputin, the real man, and his real words and actions and deeds apart from the myths that had sort of encrusted him. 
And I set out to do this thinking that, oh, well, then we'll get to the truth about Rasputin and this will be sort of the contribution that I make with the book. But as I was working on it, I realized that actually you need to always keep in mind there are two Rasputins. There is the sort of the real, if you will, in quotation mark, Rasputin. And then there's the Rasputin that people carried around in their heads. And you can't understand the one without the other. And in fact, the, the more important of the two Rasputins is the myth of Rasputin, the, the beliefs that Russians at the time had about him, because those beliefs about Rasputin that developed through a variety of channels were determinant in shaping people's actions and were determinant in shaping people's attitudes towards the Romanovs and the final years of the reign of Nicholas II. So speaking of Nicholas II and the Romanovs, uh, he does eventually wind up in their presence. Um, they are, as monarchs, well, let's just say they weren't exactly out there working the rope line, right? They, they were a little on the reclusive side uh, as monarchs, not necessarily interacting a lot with people, uh, made for a great Bergman movie, but but maybe not a great way to run things. And they, probably Alexandra a little, Alexandra a little bit more than Nicholas, are very attuned to this idea that maybe some spiritual person, some visionary is going to come uh, and, and set them straight about a whole bunch of stuff. They've already had a dallying with one Monsieur Philippe, and he has actually predicted that somebody else is going to come along uh, who's going to maybe finish up the work that he started. Exactly right. I mean, you couldn't have asked for two worse people um, on the throne overseeing this vast, complicated, modernizing empire uh, at the turn of the century than, than Nicholas II and uh, his wife, Alexandra both utterly incompetent, uh, not in any way up to the task of, of managing this transition to a sort of a modern society that Russia was going through at the time. They, they isolated themselves in a gilded cage in their palaces. They refused contact um, with key members of the regime, often the aristocracy and members of the military and what have you. And they lived, they wanted this sort of quiet bourgeois sort of family, but you can't do that when you're the czar of, of Russia. Rasputin comes along in the fall of 1905. And as the family is so isolated from the millions and millions of people they, they reign over, they find in him this sort of personification of the Russian people. And they see in him a way of understanding and communicating with the Russian masses. It becomes this sort of channel for them to the people, to their subjects. And this becomes vital in shaping their opinions of who the Russians are, what the Russians want. Um, and they very much begin to listen to him as time goes on. Uh, when it comes to very important questions of, of how to run the empire. I mean, not only as time goes on, but it's sort of love at first sight, too, right? It starts out with there's a holy man out there, and they're like, okay, we can give him five minutes, whatever. Uh, and then an hour later, they're still talking. The next day, he's sending off a note, great meeting you, keep the autocracy going. I mean, it, 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 it he doesn't have to work his way or worm his way in there so much as, I mean, they're just primed to, to have somebody like this to, to talk to. And we should also say, and apologies for just fast forwarding through so much of this stuff, but there's so much to cover. They've got another problem, and it's a procreative problem. They keep pumping out daughters, which is wonderful in most situations. Not so great uh, in a kind of patriarchal lineage kind of situation of a monarchy. They've got to have a son. And then they have a son, and he is a person with hemophilia. I'll let you pick up the story uh, and the role that Rasputin then started to play. 
Well, you're absolutely right that from the very beginning, when they meet Rasputin uh, in November of 1905, he is immediately offering political guidance and and advice. The country is going through what is known as the Revolution of 1905 that almost destroys um, the Romanov dynasty. Nicholas is forced to make various political concessions. And they look to Rasputin for some sort of guidance about how how are we to navigate this this very fraught and difficult time. He insists that Nicholas try to maintain the autocracy and not give in to those clamoring for reform and change. And and his role as an advisor only grows over the years, sort of reaching its peak during World War One, right before his murder. As to the question of of Alexei, the heir to the throne the fifth child born after four daughters. There's much rejoicing that finally there's a, a male who will take the place of Nicholas II at some point. And then you're absolutely right. They find out when he's quite young that he has hemophilia, that he's um, inherited this from his mother. There's great consternation. They keep this all private. Obviously, they don't want anyone to know about it. Now, one of the stories about Rasputin is that his hold over Nicholas and Alexandra is the fact that he is able to cure Alexei um, from his horrible disease. One of the things that I sort of figured out working on this is that's not exactly the case. They do look to Rasputin during those bleeding episodes that Alexei has. He gives very limited advice on what to do. Basically, let the boy alone. Don't let the doctors bother him too much. Uh, That sort of thing. Praise over him, what have you. But what I came away with as perhaps more important in terms of explaining the intensity of the relationship between Alexandra, uh, Nicholas, and Rasputin was that they, they, they looked to him, again, as, a, as an advisor of sorts. This was particularly true of Alexandra. She realized that her husband, Nicholas, was, was a weak man, was pretty much spineless, and he was easily manipulated by ministers and courtiers. And she was constantly sort of searching for a surrogate, uh, a surrogate spine to use, uh, I don't know, lack of a better term, to, to hold up her husband and to insist that he act in ways that she felt appropriate. And she was always saying, you know, listen to Rasputin, act like Rasputin, do as he says. And not only that, but she would even say, you know, Use the comb that our friend Rasputin gave you to comb out your beard before your meeting with ministers, and that will give you the strength to resist their bad advice. Right. I, you know, one, this is a tortured analogy, but I'll use it anyway. One person I thought of while reading about his influence uh, on the Romanovs uh, was, the, you know, supposedly the only spiritual true spiritual advisor who even remotely ever touched, touched Donald Trump was Norman Vincent Peale, who was very much about positive thinking uh, and the power of positive thinking. And, and there's sort of a little bit of that there here, right? Even in terms of Alexei, he's going to be okay. This is going to be good. Stop worrying. You know, that there's a way in which he brings, quote unquote, positive energy into the room. That's definitely true. Although I would say that he also spoke up uh, when he saw things going oh, yeah. in the wrong direction. And the most famous of these is in the summer of 1914, really dramatic moment in the lives of um, the royal family, particularly of Rasputin. There's a, a crazy woman in Siberia who's somehow lost her nose. We have photographs of this. It's in the book. It's really striking. Who stabs Rasputin, um, claiming that she's killing the Antichrist. Miraculously, he survives. 
um, which is simply remarkable. And while he's in hospital in Siberia, he's hearing that uh, Europe is going to war. This is at the beginning of World War I. And he's sending telegrams back to St. Petersburg, to Nicholas saying, don't listen to the ministers, don't listen to the generals. War would be an utter catastrophe. And then finally, he, he builds up the strength to pen a letter to Nicholas begging him not to go to war, saying, I foresee nothing but catastrophe, seas of blood, eternal darkness descending upon Russia. It's a, it's a truly remarkable document. Amazingly, it has survived and is now in the Beinecke, the Beinecke, I've, I've been teaching at Yale all spring, and I keep thinking i got to go over there and look at the Rasputin letter. <laughs> you got to go see that letter. It's, yeah. it's amazing. But there again, like, you know, he, he, he was not listened to, but it's one of those one-ifs of history. What if Nicholas had listened to, to Rasputin and not uh, gone to war that summer? How would the 20th century have been different? There's a lot of that kind of stuff, though. I mean, there's this kind of, you know, I forget who said it, but somebody sort of immediately post-revolution, Russian Revolution says, you know, if there were not a Rasputin, there wouldn't have, been, wouldn't have been a Lenin. But there's also a sense, as you're suggesting, I mean, at one point, for example, he is trying to get Alexandra to talk to Nicholas about turning loose some of the food surpluses <laughs> that they have while the population is starving. And he's writing these notes. He writes notes. I, I mean, I you know you had to sort of translate them, but they seem like texts almost. They he like wrote the way that people text now. It's kind of like lots of food here, everybody hungry, poop emoji, LOL. How about feeding people? <laughs> um, you know, but I mean, here's this guy who's giving them really good advice in terms of everybody hates you right now. How about if you gave them some corn and oats? <laughs> Plus, they're starving. I mean, that's not at all the Rasputin that we get in the comic books. No, and that's the thing. I mean, this is again that that big gap between sort of the real Rasputin and the Rasputin of myth and the Rasputin in the minds of the people. Russia by, you know, 1916 was suffering horribly uh, as a result of the war. The war was not going well. And instead of uh, Russians sort of looking at themselves and their society and saying, oh, well, we can see the reasons we're not doing so well. They wanted to look for treason. They wanted to look for conspirators. And so they wanted these easy answers to complex problems. Uh, we see that again and again throughout time. And they Including were within the last three or four weeks. Exactly. And so they're saying the only way that we can explain the dire straits of Russia is there must be treason at the highest levels. And they latch onto this notion that since Alexandra is German by birth, she must be a spy in cahoots with Rasputin. And they are secretly sending um, all of our army's secrets to the Kaiser in Berlin. And that's why we're losing and thus, the only way we can save Russia is to kill Rasputin, to kill, you know, chop off the head of the serpent kind of thing. Utterly absurd, utterly bizarre, but people really believed this at the time. And still, in some cases, believe it. I know you went to Berlin, went through the archives, found, you know, pretty dispositive proof that although Russia would have, I mean, Germany would have loved <laughs> to have had a man on the inside like that, they didn't have him on the inside. Uh, and, and yet, I mean, this is the thing that I guess... I know you got letters from some guy in Russia or some other guy writing a book saying, oh, no, he's definitely a German spy. No, this idea. I said, OK, if 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 Rasputin were a spy, there would be some traces in the archives. And so exactly right. I went to went to the archives in Berlin and I found a lot on Rasputin. The, the agents uh, throughout Europe working for the German government were were very keen on figuring out, can we get to Rasputin? And if so, how is it money? Is it women? What is it? Um, but. If nothing else, Rasputin was a true patriot of Russia, 
a true supporter of the throne. And the idea that he would ever sell out Russia to the West is absurd. In fact, in some ways, you see in some of his writings sort of these typical Russian nationalist attitudes of, you know, the West is morally bankrupt, that we we may not be as rich materially, but we we uh, possess a, a deeper, more profound spiritual wealth than those in the West. So, you know, people want, again, to a boogeyman, and Rasputin became the boogeyman for Russians, um, and that they came up with this notion that if only there hadn't been a Rasputin, things would not have gone so horribly wrong in 1917 and all that. Um, it's misguided uh, thinking at, at its most basic. So um, you mentioned the Germans thinking, how do we get to them? Is it women? Well, it wasn't like he didn't have any women already. Uh, I mean, I think one of the things that attaches itself to the Rasputin myth is the idea that he he liked sexy time uh, and was able to get quite a bit of it. Uh, he also appears by your account to be a kind of a Andrew Cuomo level groper. Uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit. I mean, how much of the whole just, you know, uh, womanizing swordsmanship stuff is real? That is, is, is pretty accurate from what I could tell. Um, <laughs> you know, it wasn't thousands of women as, as some may uh, claim, but, he he always uh, seemed to have a woman or two. Um, there was a lot of, of of sort of groping and kind of gross lecherous behavior. He never would have survived the Me Too moment. Let's put it that way. Um, amazing, though. While we know he visited prostitutes in the capital, while we know he took mistresses, um, there's no claim anywhere in the sources that uh, anyone ever had his love child, which is kind of striking when you think of all the stuff they threw at him. No one ever said, I'm carrying Rasputin's baby, which is kind of remarkable. Um, and apparently his wife, Praskovia, who stayed behind in, in, in Siberia all these years, and he would go always go back and visit her and everything. Supposedly, this is probably apocryphal, but she supposedly said when this was thrown in her face, look, Grigori has enough love in him for a lot of women. So who knows? Uh, but yeah, the, the stories of womanizing, as far as I could tell, are pretty accurate. Yeah. Just one last thing before we go to break here. So the, the most toxic womanizing story was that he was having it off with uh, Empress Alexandra herself. This appears not to be true exactly. But boy, some of the letters that you cite, I mean, letters that she wrote about how she, she could just fall asleep in his embrace with her head on his breast. She could you know, know more peace than she's knowing right at that moment. I mean, let's say taken out of context, <laughs> they could they could in fact feed that idea that uh, in fact they, they were you know together in a less than platonic way. Definitely so. And th some of those letters were leaked um, at the time by Iliador, mm. his his sworn enemy at that point. Uh, I don't put any stock in the stories that they were lovers. She found great peace and comfort in his presence. I would say that she was also an extremely brittle, uptight Victorian woman, extremely proper when it came to these sorts of moral questions. And the idea that she would have given herself sexually to Rasputin is almost impossible to square with all the other stuff that we know about her as a person. Again, this was part of the attempt to slander not just Rasputin, but to slander the throne as a way to help hasten revolution or as a way to force 
Nicholas at some point to sort of make some kind of a break with Alexandra and reassert, if you will, his manly uh, role as the czar. All right. We are now going to take a break. We're talking to Douglas Smith. Uh, his book, Rasputin, Faith, Power, and the Twilight of the Romanovs, is very much the basis of our show. We'll be back with more of him. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Is this another of your blasphemies? The woman was sick. I healed her. Healed her? How, with potions? With these. Was your wife possessed of a devil? Did he exorcise her, pray over her? No, I touched her with these. It's true, Father. God would never bless someone so steeped in sin with such a gift. It must come from the devil. Who knows? I only know I have this power. I have always had it. I can feel it burning within me, driving me on. It is here inside me. It is in my hands. And I warn you, I warn you all, that I, Grigory Efimovich Rasputin, intend to use it. The power is mine, and I shall use it as I that is Christopher Lee. If you recognize the voice, he was Saruman, <laughs> Lord of the Rings. He's always pretty much always a bad guy, uh, and that's him playing Rasputin in one of the almost countless uh, filmic depictions of Rasputin. Uh, I should point out that um, in less than a year after his death, by 1917, they've got silent B-movies uh, about him, but he goes on to be played by everybody from Lionel Barrymore to Alan Rickman, Gerard Depardieu, way too heavy to play Rasputin, who's kind of lean and mean love machine, uh, voiced by Christopher Lloyd in the animated versions. Um, John Belushi played him in a sketch on Saturday Night Live, also too heavy to play Rasputin. Uh, and uh, as recently as last year, he was the villain in The King's Man, the third installment of that Kingsman series. So Rasputin never goes away in fiction. Uh, in reality, though, uh, there's a lot more to learn about him. He's just kind of not the cartoon villain <clears throat> he's made out to be. We have with us Douglas Smith, author of Rasputin, Faith, Power, and the Twilight of the Romanovs. So 
we do have to kind of delve into some of the maybe more lurid aspects of, of his legend. And I guess one of the other things that sticks to him, uh, it, let's say it's not an accident that there's a Rasputin vodka brand and I think a Rasputin craft beer or stout or something like that. He's supposedly this legendary Andre the Giant type drinker. Now, how much of that is fabrication? I think that's pretty accurate, in fact. Although it's funny, he didn't like vodka. Uh, he definitely didn't drink stout, which I think you're right. It's called Old Rasputin or something. It's brewed here on the West Coast where I am. He liked Madeira. That was his favorite drink. And he was able to down large quantities of it. He was a lusty man. He was a man of great appetite uh, for, for, for drink, for uh, women. He loved to dance uh, and would twirl and whirl at parties and things like that. So these elements... Um, of his biography are, are definitely true. He was someone who was uninhibited. He was somebody who um, liked to shock the elite classes of the capital, the, the nobles and aristocrats, which is also part of the source of some of this myth is much of these nasty stories that, you know, he was so grubby and dirty and he stank like a barnyard animal were just expressions of class disdain on the part of the elites for this, this unwashed peasant who shows up and is given access to the to the royal palace and the the imperial family, and they're jealous and angry, and they they lash out with all these sorts of gross depictions of him, which are are simply uh, in many instances un, untrue. Really, pretty bad table manners, though, right? I mean, like licking his fingers and then having you know Countess whoever next to him offering his freshly licked fingers to her. These kinds of things happened, and I do think though part of that was simply to shock uh, polite society. Right. It was, and, it was kind of a way of putting a finger in their eye. And, and we don't have time for it, but I just recommend uh, people, uh, first of all, I'll recommend Douglas, Douglas Smith's book to people, but uh, there's this thing called the Yara restaurant scandal, with which there are four or five different narratives, uh, depending on who you're listening to and who's trying to make what point about Rasputin, including the notion that he, he did say he was stripping uh, Empress Alexandra and took his own penis out to show you know what he had to offer her and all this stuff. But, um, but I think the reason that that's possible we don't have time to parse through all that right now, I don't think. But the reason that's possible, Douglas Smith, is like a lot of things seem kind of plausible about this guy. He's There's enough reality to his high-spiritedness, to his lust uh, and great appetite, as you say, so that you can, you can spin a tail and it's not going to ring false. I think you're right. I mean, he gave people a, a lot of ammunition at times. He could brag. He was he he took great. <laughs> um pride in his relationship with the royal family and he would boast about it um which obviously did not go over well with a great many people he didn't hide his womanizing he didn't hide his drinking you know he liked to say and it wasn't just something that Rasputin said it was it was something he sort of latched on to is that if you don't sin you can't repent <laughs> and if you don't repent you can't be saved uh which is sort of an interesting way of looking at things so if there's one more story or narrative about uh, Rasputin that, that just hangs around and doesn't go away, it's he's a hard guy to kill. And we know he's a hard guy to kill in the sense that you mentioned the crazy lady who stabs him and there are other attempts during his lifetime, unsuccessful successful attempts to do away with him. But we should talk about the, the actual nature of his real death. There are all kinds of stories about like how m many different things had to be done to him uh, to actually make him die and who did those things. You 
spent quite a lot of time making sure that you had a good understanding of what really did happen. So tell us. Well, it's one of the it's one of the weird things about Rasputin and his biography and his afterlife is that the the two books that did the most to set him up in public consciousness um, were written by two people who wanted him dead. One, uh, Iliodor, who tried to kill him on two occasions and failed, and then the other by Prince Felix Yusupov, who in fact did kill him, and then wrote about it in in two memoirs. Um, and that sort of established, the Yusupov book established the, the narrative of how impossible it was to kill uh, Rasputin, that he was in fact Satan incarnate, um, that, you know, uh, Yusupov and his fellow conspirators in the in the wine cellar of his mansion on the Moika there in St. Petersburg, they they tried to poison him. They tried to beat him. They tried to shoot him. Nothing would kill him. Um, and then, you know, they eventually throw him in the river, the icy river of the Neva. And it's only then that he eventually drowns and all this. This is all complete. <laughs> excuse me, BS. Uh, none of it ever happened that way, uh, as best we can tell. Yusupov, uh, from one of the wealthiest families in, in Imperial Russia, fled after the revolution. He lost everything. He needed money living in Paris. So he began to write his memoirs, knowing this is the only thing that he had to sell to anybody. And he really sort of sexed it up as best he could with this outlandish tale of the murder of Rasputin that presents himself as sort of the Archangel Michael doing battle with Satan in the book of Revelation. It's a completely fabricated tale. We have the um, autopsy photographs of Rasputin's corpse, and you can see that he was shot twice in the midsection, once in the back, in fact, probably when he was trying to run away. And the other, what the Russians called the control shot, which was basically a bullet right in the middle of his forehead administered at very close range. He was, he was murdered in cold blood, he was lured to his death thinking he was uh, going to a party. Um, and in fact, the murder did not save Russia as Yusupov thought it would, but could best be seen as the opening shot of the Russian Revolution. So I'm now I'll ask you my lurid question that I alluded to at the beginning of the show because it did come up at the first meeting six years ago when your book came out. Uh, so what's up with this penis? Is it really true that the penis was preserved somewhere? Uh, no. <laughs> Sorry to disappoint. You know, the, not long after uh, his murder in the, in the 20s, I believe it was, there was a myth that, that started that that uh, the killers had had lopped off his his penis and that it made its way to the West and was venerated as some sort of um, cultic uh, object among his followers in France, kept in some special little box and what have you, utter nonsense. Um, and then now you can go to some sort of museum of sexology in, in, in Petersburg and they have something um, floating in formaldehyde that they claim is, is uh, in fact, um, the member of, of Rasputin. The autopsy reports make no reference to any sort of castration or dismemberment or what have you. So again, it all ties into this, this crazy hypersexualized uh, mythology of, of Rasputin that uh, while entertaining uh, has no basis in fact. 
So uh, I'm not that disappointed, by the way. Um, so uh, I hadn't like pinned my hopes to that. You know, reading your book, there's a way in which this is a tale that is located, you know, somewhere between 1900 and let's say 1917. But it's also it feels like a very modern story in a lot of ways. There, there's the way in which kind of fake news becomes truer in the minds of a lot of people than reality. Uh, there's also, as you alluded to, uh, a bunch of Russians sitting around trying to figure out why the war isn't going so well. That seems very familiar, looking for someone to blame for why the war isn't going so well. Um, but I'm also wondering if there are other ways in which you feel as though, I mean, one of the obvious mysteries is, why are we still talking about this guy? I mean, you know, not that he didn't loom large in his moment, but we're talking about 10 years of Russian history, basically. Uh, and it's just he's never out of the conversation in popular culture. Everybody at least has some idea who Rasputin is, right? Nobody ever draws a blank with that name. That's a good point. I think, you know, what's interesting is there's very different histories of Rasputin after his murder between Russia and the West. In Russia, in the early years after his murder, there is interest in him. There is writing about him, uh, an attempt to sort of publish documents relating to him. But then, you know, the country plunges into civil war. Uh, Then you have, you know, the birth of the Soviet Union. You have the censorship um, that lasts for decades and decades. And they don't talk about Rasputin. And he sort of completely disappears from public consciousness. Whereas in the West, as you already alluded to, you get movie after movie after movie, books and and things. And so the Rasputin never dies in the West. I think because, you know, it's so rich. The whole story of the, the utter train wreck that is the Russian Revolution of 1917 and the collapse of the Romanov dynasty, it's just, it's so utterly dramatic and powerful and it's complex and the personalities are large and intriguing. I think this has done a lot to keep Rasputin alive. Um, and this question of how power operates, I think is also something that continues to fascinate us. Russians were convinced at the time that there were what they called Tumniasili, dark forces at work that were the true, if you will, factors in shaping the, the course of history that that the things that we see in front of us, the institutions and, and people in power we see in front of us are not the real people with the, the levers of, of control in their hands. And I think this notion of people behind the scenes manipulating and controlling fate is something that we have obviously been kind of caught up with ourselves with all this talk about, you know, a deep state or global elites led by, you know, George Soros, um, all of it smacking of, of, of anti-Semitism and conspiracy theories and you know basically just utter nonsense is something that is, has resonated here in this country in, in recent years. I think as a result, maybe in part because we too as a society are going under fairly large substantial changes that a lot of people struggle to make sense of. And so they look for these, these easy ways to explain complicated processes. Right. And Rasputin is such an archetype, you know, that he's easily applied. I mean, there is right now in Russia a guy who's 
frequently referred to uh, as Putin's Rasputin, uh, Alexander Dugin. He's a fascist geopolitical philosopher who likes the Nazi part of, uh, of Heidegger and believes in all these in a, eschatological movements and stuff. Um, the, he's, he seems like a much more toxic person, actually, than Rasputin. But there's a way in which, and we'll probably have to end here, but it's, it's kind of like the line in Hamilton about who lives, and, who lives, who dies, who tells your story. Even while you're living... Who's telling your story and how becomes incredibly important in terms of defining you. And it seemed like Rasputin, even while alive, was this kind of all-purpose tool for almost any kind of argument. He's corrupting our beloved Romanovs. No, he's proof of how decadent the Romanovs really are. And on and on. Whoever's talking at that moment can use Rasputin uh, as proof of something bad, even if it might be a total counter-narrative to the last thing somebody else said. I would agree. And I think, you know, the one word that eventually came to me after working on this scapegoat, Mm -hmm. he became a very convenient scapegoat for people of different political beliefs and persuasions. He became a shorthand way of explaining all of the problems and not only that, but of putting putting them on his shoulders. All right. We're going to stop there, although I could talk a lot more. It's a great book. Rasputin, Faith, Power, and the Twilight of the Romanovs. Douglas Smith, thank you for your time. We'll take a little break, and then we'll really take it into the world of fiction, specifically the Hellboy franchise. Then I opened my eyes and the nightmare was me. I was once the most mystical man in all Russia. When the royals betrayed me, they made a mistake. All right, we are back. Time to say some thank yous, starting with the control room where Dylan Reyes is there at the board, uh, overseen by the watchful. And, and now you're declaring yourself Russian, too, as well, Cat Pastor. Uh, and uh, special thanks to Julia Pistel, uh, one of our freelance producers who who spent six years uh, producing this particular episode. I mean, she wasn't, like, working at it all the time. <laughs> but it is like our Fitzcarraldo. We actually had to push an entire uh, life-size replica of the Kremlin over a hill in a jungle in order to get this thing done. Uh, so thanks to her. And, of course, Lily uh, Tyson is always around making sure everything is done the right way. Uh, she's our senior producer. All right. So it's it's like Hellboy Week on our show because we re-ran on Tuesday our interview with Doug Jones. Uh, we re-ran our show, our radio show about mime. That's how well we think of, uh, out the whole, you know, McLuhan-esque as- aspects of an auditory medium. We do a show about mimes. But Doug Jones is in uh, Hellboy. But now we're going to talk to Chris Roberson, uh, who is the co-creator of the comic book series I, Zombie, and the co-writer of several titles in the world of Mike Mignola's Hellboy, including Rasputin. The voice of the dragon. Uh, so, first of all, welcome to our conversation. Glad to be here. So, explain uh, who, I mean, Rasputin is Rasputin in these uh, comic books, uh, in the movies, uh, but uh, explain who he is kind of within that reality. Well, he's very much the myth of Rasputin. Uh, we, we don't tend to engage too much with the reality of who he was as a historical figure. Um, he's just this this giant lurking uh, sinister figure allied with dark powers. And his story very much begins after the death of the real guy. Um, so that we, we have quite a bit of creative license in how we deal with him. 
Um, my understanding is, uh, is, and if so, this is a great, you should pardon the expression, nerd culture story that, that is it true that your first exposure to Rasputin or one of your early exposures was Nicholas and, Ale- Nicholas and Alexandra because of the Tom uh, Baker performance? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, it was in middle school or high school early on. And the only reason I was interested in the film was that Doctor Who was on it. Um, and so that became kind of like the the touchstone for me of who Rasputin was as a person was this kind of darker version of a of a of a beloved character actor. Yeah. So Tom Baker uh, plays you know, Rasputin in, in that particular movie. Uh, he goes on to become Doctor Who. I think Rasputin is in Doctor Who too, but I think it's a Matt Smith episode of Doctor Who. I just want to prove my own nerd bona fides by even knowing something like that. I believe that is correct. Yes. <laughs> Okay. Um, so, so talk a little bit about you know what do you do with that character? How do you shape him? How do you make him into whoever he is in, in the Hellboy universe? Well, very much just as an antagonist. You know, like it's not a character whose uh, head we tend to get inside of. Um, we we treat him the way that Bram Stoker treated Dracula, as a as a figure of menace from the outside, and the focus of of that we tend to pay attention to is the people arrayed against him or who are gradually discovering his existence or dealing with. And, and I, I, in this, I'm speaking of the, the subsequent stories that I have done with Mike and not Mike Mignola's original take on the character uh, in Seed of Destruction, where he is involved in the arrival of Hellboy on, on Earth as a summoning of a demon supposedly to help the Nazi efforts, but really for his own sinister purposes. So you you could have called your villain anything, right? You could have just made up a name. You could have called him, you know, you could have made up a name like Voldemort or Sauron or something. Explain, what's the allure of taking somebody who already does have kind of a brand? You know, I, I would have to be putting words into Mike Mignola's mouth to answer definitively, yeah. but I think he just liked the image of it. I mean, it, with so many of these things um, uh, that Mike Mignola has put into the world of Hellboy, it's things that had a big impression on him growing up or that he encountered at an impressionable age. And oftentimes it's like, just as I say, the image of a thing. So like, for example, um, like a Sax Romer novel, he's more impressed with the cover of it than with the actual text. Um, and there were, I think there was just something of the, the visual and particularly the, the, you know, the, the striking eyes and those famous photos of, of Rasputin becomes the basis of this mythologized version of the character. Yeah, I mean, obviously, particularly when you're when somebody's drawing a comic book, having features that you can latch onto, and the eyes are already kind of famous, uh, sort of well established, and and anybody and they're they're not as you say mythologized. They are. He really did have kind of crazy looking, penetrating, piercing eyes. I'm looking. I was sitting here looking at a photo of him in the studio on on Douglas Smith's book cover right now, and it's it's unmistakable. We should say you were a, a, a middle school history teacher for a while, right? I was very briefly. I, I atoned for my sins as, a, as an unruly student in my youth. Yeah. So, I mean, in that sense, also the historical qualities of this, the, the idea that, yes, this is not the real Rasputin. He didn't, you know, he was not able to harvest salt from the tears of angels or whatever it is he does. <laughs> you know. But there's a sort of sense in which it's probably a little bit more appealing to have somebody who, who does connect in some way to history. Well, it's interesting because, you know, yeah, I was a, a historian, I minored in history um, and was a history teacher for a while. And it's it's been a passion of mine throughout my adult life. And I tend to approach these stories that I do as historical period pieces, or at least secret history, historical period pieces. 
But because of the, the, the realities of how Rasputin enters this narrative, Rasputin is the one element that I don't pay any attention to the real history. So while I'm doing exhaustive research of, of like the period and the location, what's happening geopolitically that might be interesting in these stories that we could then kind of toss a monster into, for Rasputin himself, it is just, you know, the, the distant image of this guy. Right. And and um, there's a way in which, well, we should also say we did an entire show a million years ago about alternative histories. And, and, and one of the weird things about Rasputin is like he usually when you're doing that, you pick the you pick things that could have been way worse. You know, <laughs> the Nazis won, the South won, the Civil War, the you know, just the wor- worst things that then even did happen. I think in the case of Rasputin, like everything that happened was about as bad as it could, unless your name was Vladimir Vladimir Lenin. Everything that happened, you know, worked out about as badly as it possibly could for uh, anybody close to it. But I, there's also just sort of a way in which you're tying Rasputin into another historical story, uh, and that is the Nazis in World War II. We're almost out of time, but kind of give us a sense of what's going on there well yeah like so rasputin is basically making use of the nazi occult bureau for his own ends um you know tangentially tied to the real history of things like the ananerba but again mythologized past all recognition um but it's basically just because you know nazis are very uh, obvious bad guys and it's nice to have uh um characters who who you know it, punching them is the right answer. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I like that. Uh, that might be a good place for us to a- end as well. So, Chris Robertson, thank you so much. Co-creator of the comic book series I, Zombie, and the co-writer of several titles in the world of Mike Vignola's Hellboy, including Rasputin, The Voice of the Dragon. We probably should have explained who Hellboy is for people who don't partake of that kind of thing, but uh, but we'll, we'll have to do that on another day. Anyway, thank you very much for this. Uh, thank you also. You can bring up the music here. You can bring up the Prokavia right now, Dylan. Uh, we're going to say goodbye right now. Uh, and uh, but thanks to Douglas Smith, thanks to Julia Pastel, and everybody else who helped out here. Uh, and we'll just sort of let you bask in a little sort of Russian sleigh ride music. <laughs>